Hey everyone, welcome to Way of Life Podcast, where we firmly believe that everyone picks a way in life and what way you pick is extremely important and directly affects how you live. In this podcast, we seek to interview people from all around Australia and beyond on life's most important topics. Whether you're a Christian, a skeptic, or someone with a whole heap of questions, this podcast is for you. My name is Matt, a pastor living in Brisbane, Australia. This is Way of Life Podcast. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Way of Life podcast. Um, For those of you who are tuning in for the first time or uh, have joined us here or online, what we want to do at Way of Life podcast is um, we want to ask life's big questions and we want to wrestle with different questions and and we ask the question of what way of life uh, are you on and what way of life are you going to pick? Because the way of life that you pick actually truly matters and it affects how you live. So we we get a bunch of different speakers on from mostly in Australia, sometimes from overseas, um, to chat about different topics. Um, And tonight we've got none other than Dan Patterson himself. It's great to be back. I think I was the inaugural guest for the Way of Life podcast. Yeah, you are. So for those of you who don't know, Dan was our first uh, person that we interviewed and uh, it was a, it was a, an interesting first time, put it that way. We got here and we're like, yeah, we're going to set up and all this kind of stuff. And then the, the, the power just went out and we're just like, oh, this is fun. Um, and then it, it was, it stayed out almost till 5.30, bang on 5.30 when we started. We set up in the foyer to do something different, I think. Yeah, yeah, we did. And we got like a bunch of tea light candles and we're like, yeah, we're ready to go. And then the power came back on and we're like, okay, let's just, let's hurry up and go inside. So it's good to have you again. Glad I'm to be glad here. Glad the power's on this time. <laughs> Same, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, so I'm wanting to mainly, I'm going to chat with you for a little bit, but I want to allow a bunch of time for our listeners to ask some some good questions uh, that they might yeah. have around the Christian faith and and God and all things related. Um, but I, I've seen many of my youthies uh, have seen a lot of your videos of questioning Christianity. We've been going through a big question series at youth group. and um, But for those of who, uh, who aren't at my youth group, uh, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what is questioning Christianity. Yeah, appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So questioning Christianity was a new not-for-profit that we launched at the beginning of this year. And the real heartbeat isn't dissimilar to this podcast. The tagline for the ministry is connecting the Christian story to life's deepest questions. Mm, like because it. I'm thoroughly convinced that the unfolding narrative of the Bible and the way that God's story speaks to many of the most fundamental things that we're asking about who we are and why we're here and how we should live, what's wrong with the world and how to make it right. And all the doubts that either believers or skeptics have about their way of life, that these are things that the biblical story really does meaningfully engage with. Mm. And so I do talks in universities and schools, kind of in person or stuff like this, sort of different kinds of events. But particularly we've been developing kind of online resources that help people wrestle through with these questions. And so our YouTube channel is probably the most well-known thing where we're creating these short five to eight minute videos responding to all of those hard questions. (laughs) The ones you hope no one asks you late at night when you're feeling tired. Uh, as well as then creating stuff on Instagram and Facebook to complement it, so yep. really break it down into more infographics and, and the key ideas, and then uh, more long-form articles on our website, questioningchristianity.com. So a ton of stuff to keep me busy. It's really cool. I've actually, for a little while there, I was like, I need someone local 
who, or like in Australia, that's doing what you're doing right now. And then you kind of came out of, not came out of the woodwork, you were already doing it, but then you just like, you're just like, I'm just going to do it. And you're just full time doing that, which is so cool. Um, I wanted to pitch you a little book as well, because I think it's fantastic and I think everyone should read it. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about Questioning Christianity? Yeah, well, obviously I'm struggling to come up with other titles, right? We name both the organization and the book, so I'm a little bit one-track mind at the moment. But a friend of mine pulled me aside. He said, I want to take you out to dinner. Let's have some wings, and I want to talk to you about an idea. Because he had so many people asking him what would be a really good resource or book that they should give either to a friend or family member who's a newcomer to Christianity or someone who maybe is a bit resistant towards religion but still is exploring questions. Uh, Or someone who's a Christian who's really trying to find their feet or someone who's a Christian who really wants to have better language to know how to have helpful God conversations. Mm. And so we set out with this lofty idea in mind to create a book for all of these different reasons. And Questioning Christianity has... Yeah, it's kind of been (laughs) the outcome. We wrote it during COVID, so you're already locked down or mostly kind of homebound. Um, So that just worked out really helpfully and, uh, and launched a few months ago just with the intent of really hopefully being able to help people figure out what is this Christianity? Is it really something worth believing? What about my doubts? And what does it actually mean if I do decide I want to follow Jesus? What does Mm. that look like? And so we kind of have these three major sections in the book, the Christian story, unfolding the big narrative of the Bible, stepping into the story, what it would mean practically to actually start following Jesus if you were to say, no, I do want to do this. And then questioning the story, the biggest section of the book, really helping to dig down into the major barriers and doubts that most people have when it comes to Christianity. Yeah, that's so cool. We're actually going to talk a little bit about at least one of them and see where we go from there tonight, which is going to be so good. So uh, for those of you who are streaming in or who are here in person, um, if you have questions for Dan even now or uh, into the podcast that me and him are talking about, uh, you can go on Slido, um, which is sli.do. And then the number should come up on the screen, but uh, it is 168 six five four one six eight six five four um so make sure you get your questions in make sure you vote on the ones that you like and you want the most um but other than that i i wanted to kind of dive straight head first into uh one of the topics that you do in the third part of your book which is kind of on the hiddenness of god because i think that's such a a common question that I get and I was going to actually read a little just like the first couple of uh, paragraphs of of your book if you don't mind um, because I think it frames it really really well Um, so you write why does God make it so hard to believe in him this isn't just a big question for atheists and agnostics who don't believe in God even Christians often uh, find themselves full of doubts fueled by times when God just doesn't seem as real as we think he should. People the world over struggle to believe in a God they cannot see. Our secular age has trained us to think that the only things to be accepted as real are those that can be proved objectively by undeniable evidence. And when it comes to the God question, many feel the evidence just doesn't stack up. If God really wanted everyone to believe in him, why didn't he make his existence more believable? So I'll ask you, Dan, why, why do you think maybe God is, is more, isn't more obvious? 
It's a great question and, and one that we need to take some care to kind of unpack. Yeah, First of all, it. I don't know if you should be diving headfirst into anything after breaking a rib last week. So <laughs> just be a little bit more cautious about diving headlong. For those of you who don't know, this is embarrassing, but I broke a rib playing handball. It was, uh, I ran into a pole. It wasn't because of a, a ball. It was just my commitment, like commitment through the roof. Handball's at least a sport. Me. At least you didn't say knitting or you know, cleaning the bench or something like that. <laughs> but um, well but this, this question, you know, why isn't God more obvious or why is it that God sometimes seems hidden is a really deep and meaningful question that people need to ponder. Yeah. Uh, I think often when I'm speaking to people, I say, I just can't wrap my head around the God thing. They'll say, if you really wanted me to believe in him, why doesn't he just tear open the sky? This big cosmic version of peekaboo, you know, or why doesn't he stand made by God as a birthmark on my foot? Just something so undeniable that then I would believe that he exists. Mm. And I think there's a couple of ways of coming at this question. And, and one is to say, I'm not entirely convinced that in many ways, God hasn't made his existence, at least in some ways, very obvious. Mm. And the claim of the Christian story is that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Yeah. That's Psalm 19, 1, that creation speaks. Or in Romans 1:20, the apostle Paul uh, sort of outlines this a little bit further where he says, for since the creation of this world, God's invisible qualities, his divine power and might have been clearly visible, yeah. being evidenced by what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so his essential argument is though, even though when you come into a building, you don't necessarily expect to see the architect here in the building. Yeah. Nonetheless, there are certain features about that building, namely its existence and its intricate design, perhaps even beauty when yeah. it comes to certain buildings that say, ah, I reasonably infer that there is an intelligence and architect behind this yeah. because of the nature and existence of the thing that I am looking at, that this isn't something that just comes about purely by natural forces. And so I would say that nature speaks and reveals so much of who God mm. is. And, and this is certainly a whole lot of uh, arguments over discoveries in within the scientific field in the last hundred years. Certainly the origins of our universe, particularly the fine tuning of our universe. How many yeah, parameters go a little bit into I was, most people often ask me about those kind of okay. uh, the scientific side of things. I wanted to wondered if you wanted to dive in some of the best kind of yeah evidences. well maybe i could suggest a future guest and so often yeah, when yeah. i ask these questions it's helpful for me to be more like the gp pointing you to the specialists the people yeah. who really know what they're talking yeah. about so one of my mates luke barnes he's a theoretical physicist he teaches now just out in western sydney but he wrote a book with an atheist his his um research partner called a fortunate universe where wow. both of them agree on the science that when you dig down and look at the fundamental features of our universe right at the point of origins at the mass expansion the big bang kind of moment that there were roughly speaking it was many as we're aware of now about 50 or so of these fundamental features constants and quantities that so had to be precisely calibrated mm. within a hair's breadth for life to be possible anywhere in the vast reaches of our universe consider it to be a dial that if you move it a tiny bit in either direction the universe as we know it could not exist and life of any kind would not be possible in its vast reaches. Mm. And when they start looking at what's the best explanation for this fine tuning, are we just going to go down the line of chance that it just happened to be that all of these features were put this way and yeah. various scientists have done the maths on this and come out with numbers that are astronomical. I think the, the one that I saw was looking at just some of these fundamental features Paul Davies worked out that is like one in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power, which is a number that is so far beyond comprehension that he says it's just not a meaningful explanation. And he goes on to give this analogy. He says even just the fine tuning of the strong nuclear force, one of these features, and he'll say, were you to change that any more than one in 10 to the 37th power, the universe as we know it could not support life. It just mm. would not hold together. 
And he says, the chance of that happening is the same as this. And he says, imagine if you took the entire continent of North America. That's you know, the big. USA, Canada, and Mexico, as much as you might want to build a wall in Mexico, right? It's all <laughs> one, according to some politicians. Um, and so you take this uh, continent and you cover it in 10 cent pieces and then stack that up to the moon, right? All the way out, the imagine heck? sticky glue, furthest elliptical point of the moon, stack all the way up to the moon. And then you take another 1 billion continents as big as North America and you repeat the process. Cover them in 10 cent pieces and what? stack it up to the moon. And then you take one more coin, dip it in red paint and hide it somewhere in those 1 billion and 1 stacks. And then you send out someone randomly into this wilderness and get them to choose just at random one of these coins, blindfolded. The odds of them choosing that red coin is roughly speaking one in 10 to the 37th power, yeah. which is the odds just of this one fundamental feature being so finely calibrated mm. to allow for intelligent life. And, and that's just when you multiply improbability upon improbability, the design feature just becomes overwhelmingly yeah. apparent. And which is why another um, Oxford theoretical physicist, Ard Louis, he says, man, the more we study our universe, mm. the more we discover, the more that it points towards God and yep. not away from him. What do you think stops people, I guess, in those kinds of fields from kind of taking the next step? Because I guess some people that ask this question um, may even know those kind of answers and things like that, but it's more of a, I don't know, like a, a feeling and emotional side or uh, that type of side of things. But a bit of a hard question to answer, but like what do you think stopping people generally in your in your to yeah. kind of I think it's dangerous territory as soon as we try and infer motives to anyone, yeah, you sure. know, or to know a person's mind. I wish I had that gift and Dan, knowing their hearts said <laughs> I just don't have that gift. <laughs> Dan all knowing But there are there are a number of things. I mean, some scientists won't want to step beyond the bounds of what they're able to test and prove. And yeah. so they're purely about observation, making workable models that are able to be tested in the real world. And the God hypothesis isn't something that you can mm. test in yeah. that same way. And so even though it's a reasonable inference to the best explanation, it's not something that helps them get anywhere. And so some of them will say the God explanation doesn't help us in yeah. any way. Um, others certainly may have other motives of not wanting to admit that there is yeah, a God. True. Certainly you've got someone like Thomas Nagel or Aldous Huxley or other key scientists who said, it's not that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right. Yeah. It's that I don't want there to be a God. So mm. writes Nagel in his book in 2010, The Last Word. And so this idea of being convinced that Man, I don't want there to be a God. And so I'm going to look for alternative explanations and yeah. come up with alternative possibilities sure. rather than just simply throw in the towel. And yeah. you know what? As a scientists, I think that's the right move, that Christians shouldn't because they have a theological explanation of agency, that God is involved in this process, stop pushing the limits on how much we can apply reason to make sense of what God has created in yeah. nature. And so we shouldn't just say, well, God did it and give up on the scientific enterprise. God said to study his creation to make it fruitful. Mm. And so that ability to then keep trying to make sense of nature is why you see, you know, and you, you said why so many are stopped. You'd be amazed at how many people in those fields are believers in God, even yeah, believers sure. in Jesus, many of them believers in the Bible, evangelical Christians. Yep. It's, uh, it's quite overwhelming when you go and see particularly the number of Nobel Prize winning scientists or laureates yeah. who are of that persuasion. So Yeah, yeah, that was a really good answer. Um, I, what are some other things outside of science uh, kind of coming out again that you'd kind of... Uh, tell someone that's kind of going like, why isn't God more obvious? Yeah, well, if, if what they're asking is for evidence, I think it's just an, it's sometimes helpful to give them a little bit of the smorgasbord of the evidences that are available. Now, there are some 24 
families of arguments that have been put forward by Christian thinkers Just over the few. years. So it's quite quite a big field. And uh, and so your cosmological arguments, your ontological arguments, your contingency arguments, your fine-tuning or teleological arguments. Uh, and then you get more to the ones of human experience, though. Mm. The ones where, you know, the Bible makes the claim that human beings are made in the image of God. Yeah. That if you want to know something about what God is like, you can look at human beings to infer upwards certain features of how we mm. are made. And so you think our relational nature, our hunger to love and be loved, or you yeah. think about our rational capacities to be yeah. able to do abstract thought that maps onto the real world to make sense of mm. the way that things really are. You think about our kind of moral properties, that we have these consciences that seem to be tapping into a moral reality that good really is good and that yeah. evil really is evil and that these aren't just shifting conventions. That don't matter but there is a moral reality that yeah. is fundamental and it does matter that these are just a few of the features that seem to yeah, point yeah. towards some of the arguments for the existence of god the moral argument or argument from consciousness or yep. argument from rationality but then you've got the historical arguments too which are the ones how god has made himself known in human history so the heavens humanity and ultimately then history yeah where it, whether it's god speaking to prophets and helping to reveal things that would come about in the future and so give evidence to a mind that is outside time speaking with humanity, but more specifically how God has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ, mm. where the invisible God, the argument of the Bible is that the invisible God became visible. Yeah. The hidden God became obvious where Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Mm. I and the father are one. And so you can look at the claims of Jesus of Nazareth, yeah. who is life and death and ultimately the claim to his resurrection, which is meant to be that miraculous, the argument from miracles, that miraculous evidence that there is something beyond nature, an agent mm. operating from the outside. So that that's one approach maybe in the hiddenness question is to say, look, there actually are some meaningful evidences yeah. that are there, but I get that they're not as sometimes obvious or maybe not even as overwhelmingly compelling is yeah. what we might wish they were and so the question is kind of why yeah for sure do you think maybe that it's kind of a, a matter of knowing that there is actually evidence or there is actually decent reason to believe in it in the first place because i remember before i knew a bunch of what you just said and looked into it for myself i didn't even know it was there like i was a christian already but it, it strengthened my faith but often people don't even know that's on the radar that that's even something they can look at um, and often it takes uh, looking at it until they kind of go, oh, okay. Um, but I found, I don't know if you found the, this case, but I think the looking at Jesus is probably one of the biggest ones. Um, but what's been your experience with that? Like if you were going to just pop out with one bit of evidence um, straight out the gate, what would that be? Yeah, I, I love pointing to Jesus because that was yeah. how I became a Christian. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't confronted with complex or philosophically formulated arguments for the existence of God or for the argument from miracles as I was reading through the Gospels. I was newcomer to the Christian stories, trying to make sense of some of life's deepest questions. Mm. And I'm reading these stories about Jesus with a degree of skepticism, particularly because some of the suffering that I'd experienced in, yeah, our, in yeah. our life and something we shared on that other episode. But as I'm reading these stories, I was just kind of hit by the character of Jesus, mm. uh, who Einstein called this luminous figure of the Nazarene, this incredible personality that you have to ultimately find some way of making sense of. And yeah. it was the sublime nature of his teaching that Jesus had this incredible mm. moral teaching, this ethic of the kingdom that yeah. he sought to impart and, and modeled so beautifully, that singular caliber to his own life, someone mm. who really lived what he said yep. and that had this transformative impact on the people that he encountered. 
of particularly his fulfillment of some of these prophecies. You know, he's yeah. claiming that these things were set up in advance or so this whole sweep of the Christian story, which was waiting for how God was going to ultimately deal with the problem of the human heart. And all of a sudden here he is so powerfully interacting mm. with um, this backstory. But particularly it was Jesus's claim of his resurrection from the dead. In fact, he said that that was going to be the hinge upon which belief in him would turn. He said, you know, wicked and adult adulterous generation, they just want these signs but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so too shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth and then rise. Mm. And so certainly the claim of the Christian story and the early apostles who preached about Jesus' resurrection, they said, look, if this didn't really happen, this is just a spiritual metaphor or psychological crutch or if it's just something that's been made up as a legend, it is not worth it. Yeah. Because following Jesus is hard and it's costly. Yeah. And if it's a false hope, I don't want it. It's mm. only if he really defeated our last and greatest enemy, death, is this hope something worth clinging on to? Is this story really worth believing? Mm. So that resurrection of Jesus, the historical hole that the resurrection kind of leaves, that he really did die, and then afterwards he really was alive, claimed to be seen by people that would be in the know and had every reason not to perpetuate the story if, yeah. uh, if it wasn't true. And, uh, and yet the best explanation for all the data seems to be the one that the earliest Christians have claimed, that God supernaturally raised Jesus from the dead. It's a big claim. I, I find it the most compelling thing. Um, where do you think, I guess, when you're talking to people I'm thinking about who might not be uh, or have a faith or uh, know, the, know God, what is, uh, or how do you think kind of uh, your experience of the Christian faith comes into sharing That's about That's a massive this. one. Yeah, I really appreciate that insight. It's because in many respects, the negative experiences that sometimes people have with religion, particularly mm. with Christians or with the church, can really color what they think God is like. Yeah. And what you think God is like can really color your openness to actually evaluating the evidence from a meaningful point of view. Mm. Because if you think God is bad news, if he exists, that he's just some cosmic killjoy or a moral straitjacket, that life would suck if God is real. Well, then that's really going to shape your openness. And I love um, the moral philosopher and, and psycho- um, psychologist, Jonathan Haidt. He's not a Christian. He's a secular thinker, doesn't really believe in God. But he has this great insight from his uh, more evidential um, sort of base of study mm. where he says that we easily accept those things that we want to be true. And those things that we don't want to be true, we demand absolute proof. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so you see this with different political parties, you know, take uh, uh, when any event happens, you know, on one side, everyone, 80% of people believe that that was the worst thing that could have possibly happened. And the other 80% believe that, no, you're completely misreading their intentions and what's mm. going on. You're like, well, this is tribalism playing out. What you want to be true is how you're actually interpreting the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that happens so much in human nature mm. that what the heart desires, the will chooses and the yeah. mind justifies. And so our conscious reasoning so often just ends up becoming the presidential press secretary that justifies (laughs) the decisions of our more emotive Mm. reasoning. Uh, And so I think it's really helpful just to to kind of be aware that our experience often colors that. But two, Christianity, and this is one of the, the kind of responses we give in the book towards maybe why God seems hidden, is because if God wanted to get people to believe that he exists... That would be relatively easy to do. Hmm. Any of those obvious ways of tearing open the sky would probably do it. Some might say, I'm just having a psychological break with reality or there's a real glitch in the matrix, you know. (laughs) But the vast majority of people would start to believe that God exists. Hmm. But the question is, what is God's ultimate intention? Is it simply to get us to believe that he Some exists? Intellectual assent or something Yeah, more. because yeah. in the Christian story, the supposed malevolent spiritual beings, what we might call demons, 
they all believe that God exists, but that mm. does nothing to engender the right response towards him. One of a softness and an openness. Mm. And so simply believing that God exists doesn't necessarily change a person's attitude or heart. Yep. They may actually harden them yep. towards the reality of what he ultimately is longing for, yep. which is deep and meaningful relationships. Mm. Um, I don't know if anyone grew up uh, watching Coming to America. It was a great Eddie Murphy oh, film yeah. back in the, the day. One came um, out um, one. Yeah, so, and the whole premise of the story is that he's this... Prince of Zamunda, he's soon going to be the king. He needs to find a queen, but he doesn't want to marry anyone from his country because they all know he's the king. And he's raised in an incredibly patriarchal and submissive society. <laughs> and so the women that he meets are more like servants rather than actual a, a lifelong partner, someone that he could love and, and treasure and interact with meaningfully. And so he decides that he's going to go and find a queen somewhere else. And so he goes over to America, to Queens in uh, up in New York, and uh, he pretends to be like a, a, a base worker in the local McDowell slash McDonald's, right? And the reason why he doesn't want anyone to know who he is, he hides his riches, he hides his majesty, is precisely because he wants her to fall in love for him mm. and not for the trappings. Yeah. And when God comes veiled in Jesus of Nazareth, he could have come as a king, could have come with all of the pomp of heaven, but he didn't. He comes veiled precisely because what he's really seeking out in humanity is a deep and meaningful relationship where we mm. love him for the substance of who he is and are not yeah. just simply overcome by the awe of the weight of his glory or of mm. his majesty, that we fall yeah. in love with his attributes, that we respond to him in that way. And if God did turn up, it would be so overwhelming that it would largely remove every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Yeah. <laughs> but this desire for deep and meaningful relationship, I think the way that God has chosen to reveal himself, that there yeah. are real signals, odd evidences in mm. nature, in human experience, in history, yeah left enough there for those who are open and and those who want to seek yeah but it's also left enough somewhat considered sealed or hidden to yep. those whose hearts are already shut or who do not want to see mm. and so jesus's great claim in, in john chapter 3 19 where he says and this is the verdict that light has appeared but men love darkness because their deeds were evil yeah there is a light and it is given witness to in many yep. ways but he doesn't force that light upon people here mm. and now yet. He gives them the opportunity either to step into the light or to respond and to reject it. And so that's something that I think actually colors the way that he chooses to reveal himself. Yeah, that's really good. I wanted to kind of keep flowing with that a little bit. Um, so for those, you get this question from time to time, and I think most Christians will feel it to some degree. Um, but when you actually, you're kind of like, I've found Jesus, I've found this relationship with him, I've found what often is pitched as the God-shaped hole in my heart and it's, it's being filled. But sometimes there's that feeling where it kind of just still doesn't feel like I quite, haven't quite, quite enough, that I'm not quite satisfied. And um, often that isn't the case. Sometimes we feel absolutely just in awe of God and we're so satisfied, but there's, there's sometimes dry seasons and things like that. So I was wondering, just from your experience and talking to people and, and your knowledge, like how... Could you speak into that maybe a little bit? Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I um, mean, one of my favorite books of the Bible is in the Gospel of John. So one of the four biographies kind of told from the perspective of some of Jesus' closest friends. And in there, Jesus makes these claims, you know, I am the bread of life. I come to satisfy your deepest hungers or I am living water that bubbles up to eternal life and they to satiate the thirsts of the human soul or, you know, uh, I've come that they may have life and life to the full. And I'm like, well, I, uh, I have Jesus. Sometimes I'm pretty empty. Yeah. Sometimes I'm pretty exhausted. Sometimes, particularly, I don't feel my faith the way that I once did. Mm. And, and what do we do to process something like that? And one of the things I was really struck by thinking about this 
is how common that experience is right across yeah. the Bible. The number of key biblical characters who talk about their own dark nights of the mm. soul or a sense of divine distance. You've got in Psalm 10, 1, you know, King David crying out, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times yeah. of trouble? Or you've got these real moments of powerful depression, you know, where in uh, 1 Kings 19, 4, you've got Elijah after one of his greatest victories, spiritually speaking, then a few days later saying, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. Yeah. Like, I just want to tap Brutal. out. Things are so hard yeah. right now. And that's something you see on the lips of Jeremiah, on the lips of Jonah, even on the lips of Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, where he says he despaired even of life itself, just overcome mm. by many of the challenges and opposition that he was facing. And so recognizing that this isn't an uncommon experience, mm. maybe helps to liberate me. That when, when you walk around and some Christians are like, yes, I'm floating on cloud Jesus all the time. <laughs> that actually sometimes those are storm clouds. Yeah. And sometimes you just feel like he's gone off in the clouds yeah. and left you all alone. And, and, and that's a really common experience. That's helpful to recognize that the Bible doesn't deny this reality. It kind of mm. leans into it. And the, the question is kind of why? Why is yeah. it that way? Why, why doesn't do God just become so overwhelmingly present to us all the time that you're basically walking hand in hand with Jesus through all of the challenges of life? <laughs> and I maybe came to a couple, of, a couple of thoughts on that. One has to do maybe with the time that we're in. And I'm not sure whether I shared this idea last time we were here, but if it's true that at the return of Jesus, when he comes back to set everything right, that that is the moment of the cosmic marriage between heaven and earth. Yeah. Well, then that's the period that we look forward to where there's no more sense of distance. Yeah. Where right now, the best that could be described would be the engagement period. And yeah. one is <laughs> someone who does marriage counseling or premarital counseling with all kinds of young couples. That real longing to be together, mm. to not have to say good night at the you know, nine yeah, o'clock yeah. or 10 o'clock and then do the long drive home of that sense of there being nothing or no distance between you of unmediated intimacy. Mm. But that's something they look forward to in the marriage, yeah. but it's not yet when it comes to the engagement period. And the Christian story describes this somewhat in 1 Corinthians 13, where it speaks about the nature of divine love. Love is patient and kind. It is not envy or is not proud or rude or self-seeking. And then it goes on to say down there that there's this longing for the perfect to come because right now we see through a glass dimly mm. that our knowledge is incomplete. Our longings are still somewhat unfulfilled. We get tastes of them here. Yeah. But it's not until then at the coming of Jesus that yep. whatever distance we sense will ultimately be eclipsed. And so what I would say about the Christian life is there are many ways where I get foretastes of the kingdom of God. Mm. And even uh, in Hebrews, it speaks of that who have tasted of the heavenly gift. We get to taste and see that the Lord is good, but it's not the full wedding feast yeah. yet. And so it's these little experiences and appetizers where you see some of the reality of what is coming as it begins to break in upon us. So that, that kind of the time yeah. that we're in helps me to make sense of some of that experience that things aren't always um, how it will be. And the other aspect to that is that because Jesus has not come yet, we still live in a fallen world. Mm. My desires haven't been so refined yet that I long for the right things. Yeah. Uh, I still am way too easily tempted to satisfy myself with things other than 
God or to yeah. try and chase after things that I know won't make me ultimately happy. Yep. But, you know, it's like that long-term vision to look good and be fit so that I can live long and enjoy life with my boys. And I'm driving home hungry and McDonald's is right there with that big <laughs> M. And it's just so easy to wander in and to quickly satisfy that instant yeah. desire yeah. when you know, oh, that's actually not the best thing for me long-term. So often just with our, for our sort of finite and fallen nature, we just so easily give in and, and mm. our desires are still disordered. We still live in a world that is affected by evil too. Yeah. That many of us, our minds, the patterns of thought, our bodies, our body chemistry, our brain chemistry, it's just not now what it will yeah. ultimately be. And so yeah. the Christian story describes how we were made for God's presence. And so we experience parts of that here and now, but we still wait for the longing of Jesus' appearance where that will take its full effect and we'll finally have those contours of the human heart and that shape of the life mm. that we were created to live actually come to full fruition. So is there a sense then... And I'm cautious asking this. I'm not, I don't want to push it to the other extreme, but is there a sense because we kind of live in this now but not yet, we're in the engagement period where we can't always kind of see it in its full, is there a sense in which we shouldn't expect to feel it all the time, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. Um, and again, it's probably one that's best answered historically, both as you look through the lens of the Christian story. What did the early Christians experience? Did they always have these ecstatic moments of mm. miracles or yeah. are these punctuated experiences over a longer period of time? Yeah. Or were there experiences of those early Christians and Christian leaders of sensing God's distance or a sense yeah. of his absence or what to do with disappointment and struggle and doubt and anxiety and fear? And, yeah. and so there, there is, I think, that realism that's built into it where they're saying, man, you get these tastes of God, but, but it's not always easy. In fact, there's yeah. all kinds of trials and difficulties really that come hard. along with that. But they also do encourage us to lean in mm. because the danger of, of um, you know, the kind of reasoning that I'm doing right now is you can justify not chasing after the yeah, presence of God. Yeah, that was the God. extreme. I don't want to go to you know, and, and Jesus gave these warnings of there is so much more on offer. You have not mm. because you do not ask. Yeah. And if you do ask, if you knock, if you seek, mm. and so much more will be open to you. And the father delights mm. to give good gifts to his children. So I think that reality of wanting to lean in and follow the simple disciplines yeah. and simple doctrines that help to shape us spiritually to get ready for the presence of God, yeah. to experience the presence of God, yeah. to know him with us, to live that at the same time as when we don't experiencing that, don't treat that as a judgment or that God doesn't love us or yeah. that he doesn't want us to flourish. Yeah. And actually one other analogy that I found really helpful is on this. Um, is the idea of understanding God's end game. Because when you look in the final scene of the Christian story where Jesus comes back to set everything right, to renew creation, where we're resurrected, to have bodies that are no longer susceptible to suffering or sickness or death yeah. or decay, that God's end game is not for us just to sit around on a cloud with Philly cheese and with wings and just <laughs> sing, play harps and sing songs to God. There is worship, but actually the vision of a renewed earth is that we would rule and reign alongside Jesus, that we would mm. have high political office as stewards of creation, as mm. gardeners and governors of God's good world. And if that's God's intention for us to be wise, morally mature actors in the world, yeah. we're using our agency to follow God's design, then actually that shapes part of the way that God interacts with us here and now. Mm. Now, as a dad to young boys, so often they want me to do everything for them <laughs> but if i keep tying up their shoes for them and if i don't teach them how to do it 
Mm. And at pivotal moments, actually remove my presence from them so that they are forced to do it themselves, to learn how to take those steps rather than just me carry them Mm. the whole way. I'm not actually helping them grow and mature and develop. And so sometimes the sense of God's absence may actually be to achieve certain purposes that help us to grow into the kinds of people that we need to become. And so the right reaction in an experience of maybe a sense of divine disappointment or God's absence is to just, that's it, I give up or I'm not going to listen to God anymore. Mm. It's to realize actually God's distance may not be a sign that I'm moving away from him or that he's moving away from me. Actually, it might be a degree of my maturing in God as well. That if I keep leaning in and trusting the promises of God and following the shape of the Christian story, this may actually be a part of my development to become Mm. more like Jesus and to almost be encouraged that I can trust that God loves me. I know that because of the cross. That's unquestionable when I see how far he was willing to go for me. How God chooses to interact with me, as long as I'm doing all I can to have those lines of communication open, to be leaning in and trusting his pre- presence or his sense of absence is not something I should be trying to interpret what <laughs> yeah. you know his sense of approval or disapproval on. If I'm following the will of God through the scriptures and trusting the way of Jesus, well, then I should just keep leaning in and trusting that whether That's he's good. really present or really absent, then I'm actually fulfilling the purpose that he's created for and he's doing something even if I can't see it. And the thing that gives me real confidence that this is the case, that sometimes what looks like absence is actually God achieving something really significant, again, is the Christian story. Mm. I think of Jesus' cry of dereliction on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. That here is God, the son, Jesus, experiencing divine distance of a father turning his face away. It says creation is mourning. The skies are growing dark. Mm. Of this first real experience of incredible, uh, like a breakdown of that closeness between him and the father. And yet in this very moment of God's seeming distance of his Mm. absence, he was present on the cross in Jesus. Mm. And ultimately he was achieving the salvation of whosoever believes because of a sense of his divine distance. And you look at that great turnaround and think, wow, okay, maybe what I've interpreted as a sense of God's, he's not actually absent. He's just achieving something that right now I can't quite see. And Mm. I just need to lean in and trust his character that he's doing something that even I'm just not quite aware of right now. That's so good. Thanks, Dan. That was an amazing answer to that question. Is there, just to tag onto it a little bit, and again, I'm cautious of going the other way in this, but do you think there's any kind of validity in uh, that God might feel distant because we've distanced ourselves from him by for instance i guess going to other things in this world for satisfaction and things like that is there any sense of which that might be a factor playing in it yeah and i'm again i'm very very cautious to impute an answer to anyone yeah so don't hear this as this is exactly what it is Mm. but in the range of options of things it could be i think it's wise for us to go through and consider could this be the case 100 i mean the very first question that god asks in the bible where are you? And it wasn't because God was distant. It wasn't because God was hiding. It was because humanity was. Mm. That Adam and Eve had given into temptation, that they doubted that whether you could take God at his word. They trusted the serpent over the goodness of their heavenly father. And in doing so, they felt ashamed. Yeah. And they ran away from God. Mm. The, the Christian story says that they hid from each other with fig leaves and then they ran and hid behind trees, fern bushes. There's this tendency that we have to run away from God because of our own darkness within yeah. the shadow side yeah. of our nature. That's a very real temptation. Mm. Or to be able to take a big step back from the ways that we used to follow after him, yep. but now perhaps like the church in Ephesus, you've forsaken your first love. Yeah. 
come back again, yeah, repent and good. do the things that you did at first. And so to lean in and, and to reframe our the devotions and practices and habits of our heart, mm. that we are really being open to hearing from him and drawing close to him. Uh, I think that's just one area that we need to yeah, be aware yeah. we, we can really hide. Oh, that's good. I wanted to cover kind of the different ways that you could yeah. look at it as well. That was really, really good. I'm keen to get into some Q&A in, cool. in a moment, but I wanted to kind of hear from you. We're, we're questioning Christianity, which we were talking about at the start of the podcast uh, tonight. Where can we find a lot of your resources and how, how will we even get a, a hold of your book? Yeah. Um, yeah. So like I said, we've got a lot of digital resources. So we've just tried to create this really helpful free resource online. There's a number of places that you can go. I think we might even have a slide that has a link on there. If you go to link, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E. So it's Linktree, but with a uh, period in between the TR and the EE and then just slash questioning Christianity. That'll just pull up a little web link that you can click on whichever button best suits you. We've got a website with articles and written content or ways that you could get connected, ask your own questions or support the ministry. Um, but our YouTube channel is the big one where you can jump on and subscribe and hit the bell. So you get all the notifications. We're putting out a video pretty much every week and either long form conversations or uh, these kind of short responses. And by short, mm. I mean five to eight minutes uh, of really trying to meatily respond to some of the biggest questions. Does God send people to hell? Why does God care about my sex life? Uh, mm -hmm. Why? Uh, what about other religions? Or why uh, believe in Jesus in a world of spiritual options? What happens to me when I die? Uh, all of these big kind of questions mm -hmm. that people are asking. Does life have any purpose? Does everything end in death? Is there any um, reason for hope? Just think of a question. We probably have a video for it. Uh, and then you can jump over to our Instagram. We've actually created infographics, these key slides that break down every video into its major kind of arguments and represented that helpfully for you. So jump over the Instagram link and um, sort of start following us on social media. And so you just get these various different ways that we're trying to create meaningful content that helps you connect the Christian story to life's deepest questions. It's framed at people that aren't Christians, people that have doubts or that are exploring. And it's also really helpful for Christians who still have those doubts themselves or for they're trying to learn how to better respond to these questions in conversations with others. So um, yeah, we'd encourage you to jump on. Um, our books you can find anywhere online at Kurong or Amazon or anything like that. We yeah. actually have some copies here tonight if you want to, to yeah, buy some as well good. to help kind of buy support the ministry. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Dan. Um, and the, for those of you who are watching in the future, uh, if you liked the conversation, feel free to like or comment or share this and uh, subscribe to all the relevant places. Um, but we're going to actually head on to uh, some Q&A. But before we do that, we've got five minutes for you guys to who are with us in person to have a bit of a stretch, go to the bathroom if you need to, and then me and Dan will uh, go through some of these questions. Great. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan.